Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Daniel chapter 3 tonight. Daniel chapter 3 is a very familiar story. It's a bit of the narrative of the book of Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are basically narrative, and they do run sequentially, historically. And then we get a series of visions from Daniel that take us back from the end of chapter 6 back into previous periods of time. But at the moment, we're in the sequential part of the book of Daniel. Now, the third chapter of the book of Daniel has created a great deal of controversy. When we were introducing the book of Daniel a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that the German higher critics took issue with the book of Daniel. And this is really one of those places, one of those chapters where the critics really pounce. In fact, if you go back and Look at Wikipedia today, despite what the higher critics have said in the 1800s and then the book of Daniel being found among the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran Caves, despite all of that evidence of the legitimacy and historiosity of the book of Daniel, if you look at Wikipedia, they will tell you that most scholars, they won't tell you who those scholars are, but most scholars agree that the book of Daniel was written somewhere in the, the latter Persian, early Grecian, Alexandrian period, probably during the time of the Maccabean Rebellion, about 250 to 150 years before Jesus was on the planet. So they, they are still continuing to argue that the book of Daniel is late dated. In other words, that the book of Daniel was written after the fact, and just given the pseudonym Daniel in order to give it legitimacy. And it's because of stories like the story we're going to read tonight. Now, of course, one of the big problems with the idea that Daniel was written late in the Persian period, early in the Macedonian period, one of the big problems with that is that a contemporary of Daniel's right there in Babylon is Ezekiel. Ezekiel was in the second wave of deportees out of Judah into Babylon. And so naturally, Ezekiel would be familiar with the fact that there is a Jew who's second only to Nebuchadnezzar. Somehow, by the time Ezekiel gets to Babylon, there is a Jew leading in Babylonian culture and, uh, and government. So Ezekiel actually shows that he is familiar with Daniel by quoting Daniel, or at least quoting Daniel's name, twice in his prophecy. And and none of the critics argue about what date to assign to Ezekiel. So if Ezekiel is actually talking about the Daniel who's in Babylon, which makes sense, then Daniel is actually a book that was written during the Babylonian period and is actually a book full of miraculous prophecies of things to come. Let's look at it real quick. Keep your finger right there in Daniel 3. Turn to Ezekiel 14. Here it is God himself making a reference to Daniel. In chapter 14, starting at verse 12, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me, By committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut it off from both man and beast. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land... And they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one could pass through it because of the beasts. Though these three men 
That's Job and Noah and Daniel. Though these three men were in the midst of that city, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Okay, so we know pretty much who Noah is. We know pretty much who Job is. And then did God at that moment, since historically at this point in Ezekiel's, or at the point in history where Ezekiel exists on the planet and starts prophesying from Babylon, is there any other major prophet on the level of Noah and Job that you can find anywhere in the Old Testament that God would put on par with Noah and Job if Daniel is a forgery? (coughs) If Daniel's been forged... Who's Ezekiel referring to? More importantly, who is God referring to? Look over at chapter 28 of Ezekiel. Chapter 28 is actually the king of Tyre being overthrown, predictions of the destruction of Tyre. And the word of the Lord, starting at verse 1, came again to me, saying, Son of man... Say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the sea, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom, by the way, this is God being sarcastic. It's one of my more godlike qualities. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. Okay, so here's God again saying that when the king of Tyre wants to brag about his own wisdom, he's comparing his own wisdom to the wisdom of Daniel. And I ask the question again, if Daniel is a late-dated forgery then exactly what Daniel is being referred to here? (coughs) Which Daniel? What Daniel? What Daniel is he referring to? He has to be referring to the prophet Daniel who is in Babylon at the very time that Ezekiel is receiving these prophecies and writing these prophecies. And then, of course, very, very importantly, if Daniel is a late-dated forgery, then we have to explain why it is that in Matthew 24, Jesus himself quotes Daniel and calls him a prophet. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So Jesus was either confused and befuddled by a late-dated forgery, or Daniel is an actual prophet who actually existed in actual Babylon, and the things that he wrote are actually miraculous. And it is because they are miraculous that they fall under so much criticism. So that takes us to Daniel chapter 3. Now, there are Old Testament stories that are so familiar that they actually become Sunday school stories like Noah and the ark. Taking in the animals two by two, even though the Bible says by sevens and twos. Or a story like David and Goliath. These are good Sunday school stories. Daniel and the lion's den, which we'll see in a couple weeks. Tonight we're going to look at the three Hebrew children who were there with Daniel, who have been promoted into important governmental seats by Daniel. They are going to be thrown into a furnace burning with fire. And they're not going to be burned. But there's more to the story than just that. Unfortunately, we sometimes truncate the story to just the miraculous delivery. But Daniel chapter 3 is really important to New Testament Christology, our concept 
of who Christ is as the very important nomenclature, as the Son of God and the Son of Man. That all comes out of Daniel and is introduced to us in Daniel 3. So it's the beginning of God even beginning to tell us that the Messiah who's going to come is not just going to be a spiritual being. He is not going to just be an angelic being. He is not just going to be the Son of God on planet Earth, but that he is actually going to be what is predicted back in Genesis. He's going to be the seed of the woman, and so he's going to be human. And if he is not human, then so much of Pauline theology falls apart, where he says he became like us, so that he could understand, so that he could be our high priest, so that he could bear our burden, so that he could be tempted in all ways like we are, but without sin. All of that is based in what we're going to see here tonight from chapter 3 of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar himself is going to look into the fire and say, I see one like the Son of Man. And that's probably a Christophany, but it's the beginning of our development of a full Christology as the Son of God and the Son of Man. So if you just see it as people put in a fire but not burned, then you're missing the theological import of it. Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Oh, let me say one more thing. I hope it's only one more thing. I'm I'm shooting for one more thing here. Uh, This is a really important chapter in terms of us understanding our place as Christians, as believing people of God, as the saints, as the hagias, the set aside by God. This is an important chapter that informs us how we ought to react to oppressive government. That whenever government encroaches on what it is that we believe, what we hold dear, for instance, God starting out with, I'm the only God, you'll have no other gods before me. And then the state comes along and says, you also have to worship this. You can have your God, but add this God. Well, what we're going to see here is defiance against those kinds of rules. It's the same thing that gets Daniel thrown into the lion's den, that lack of willingness to worship anything but Yahweh, the God of gods, the one who created all things, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, the supreme and the almighty God, the only one who deserves worship. Since he has said, I am the only God, worship no other gods, it's important to see here that the children of Israel do exactly that. And remember that they do have high positions within Babylonian government. So they risk a great deal. They're actually losing a lot. Well, they're risking their lives. They are potentially going to lose their lives and their high estate, and yet they stand for God. And so, as I've said over and over and over again, we need to be careful to to make sure that we always stand for Christian principles, for biblical principles, and that we don't start bending or compromising, because once you go down that road of that first compromise, well, then it gets easier on the second. And it gets easier yet again on the third. And before you know it, you've just slipped entirely away from what Christianity really is. And we see that in so many modern evangelical churches and denominations where they have compromised once and then again and again until what they're promoting doesn't even resemble biblical Christianity anymore. So I think we can also draw that from this chapter. All right, let's read. Chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold. Why would he do that? Remember last week's lesson? He had a dream where he saw a giant statue, and the giant statue had a head of gold. And Daniel interpreted the dream and said, you are the head of gold. So, of course, Nebuchadnezzar would make a statue of gold. He just had a dream that Daniel said came right from God. He said, God has shown you what's going to come in the future. So he had a dream from God that he's a head of gold. So he makes himself a statue of himself of gold. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. And he set it upon the plain of Dura, 
in the province of Babylon. Does anybody have notes that tell us exactly how tall 60 cubits is? Uh, 60 feet high and 90 feet wide. Pretty big statue. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, that just means provincial leaders, and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn and the flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, trigon, by the way, isn't a word we use much anymore. Think octagon. Okay, that's an eight-sided figure. Trigon means three-sided figure. It's either a triangle, like a little percussive triangle, or it means a triangular harp, that kind of stringed instrument. So it's a three-sided instrument, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music. When you hear all that, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. That is in direct opposition to what God has told the Israelites to do. He's been very clear about, you shall not have any graven image. We don't use the word graven much anymore, but it means any kind of molded, man-made, made with human hands, any kind of image. And then he expands on it, that you should bow down before it, that you should worship it. And that's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's a command from God that the Israelites would treat him as the only God and they wouldn't have any graven images. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes a graven image. This is everybody bow down in front of it. But whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a furnace of blazing fire. Now, we don't have a physical description anywhere in this book that tells us what this furnace looked like. But what we're going to see from the details that we do get is that there had to be some kind of furnace where you could be thrown down into the flames and that the flames as they burned upward were enough that they could even burn, well, you're going to see, burn some of the people who were throwing the children of Israel into the fire. So really hot, but then there also had to be a way for the king to see into the fire. So there had to be some kind of opening where the king could see what was happening from a distance, but there was also some kind of stair or incline or way that people could be thrown directly into the fire. So imagine whatever kind of furnace that would be. The important part is that it's a furnace and that it is going to burn you up. So it's either bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar or burn. Those are your choices. So given that kind of choice, you can see people saying, well, I'm going to bow down then. I don't want to burn. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, verse 7 Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples and the nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, which had to make Nebuchadnezzar feel pretty good about himself. He's got all the peoples, the various tongues, all the different nations, all bowing down in front of him out there on this plain where he set up this giant statue of himself. He's going to become so enmeshed in his own ego that eventually he's even going to say, look at great Babylon, which my hand built. 
So I want you to pay attention to how many references Daniel gives us to the growing ego of Nebuchadnezzar. Once he's told you're the head of gold, his ego just starts increasing and increasing until God is going to make him crazy because this is an affront to God. Make no mistake. Causing all the people to bow down to an image of yourself is an affront to God who said, worship me only. Don't worship anyone, anything, any image. Don't worship that. And now here's Nebuchadnezzar saying, worship me or burn. Now, is it worth pointing out that between Daniel and the prophecies of Ezekiel and the prophecies of Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, and that there is still a Nebuchadnezzar-like person who is going to appear on the stage of history. There is still the little horn. We haven't found him anywhere in history. We believe he's still coming. That little horn, who we commonly call the Antichrist, is still coming on the stage of history, and he is going to demand worship because he's going to set up an image of himself, which Daniel and Jesus both call the abomination that makes desolate. He's going to set up the abomination of desolation in the temple and cause everybody to worship it. And what's the inspiration? Well, you're going to bow down and worship it and take the mark of that beast or else you can't buy, sell, or trade. So you're going to go hungry. You can't buy anything. You can't sell anything. You're going to be financially destroyed if you don't bow down and worship. And then just to give it a little extra oomph, it says that the false prophet is going to cause the image to speak. Okay, that's going to be pretty convincing. And there are going to be plenty of people who will willingly take the mark and bow down and do whatever the little horn says to do because they want to preserve their own life. So again, as we're looking at this story, it's not just ancient history. It's not just Babylon 600 years before Jesus. It's as current as what's happening in the world today as the world continues to get ready for a one-world currency and a monetary system that is based in computer chips. Years ago, when I was a kid, we would read some of these stories about Antichrist in, in the Lutheran church. I remember asking the pastor there one time, who is the Antichrist? What is the Antichrist? And, and he said to me, oh, that's not important. Don't worry about it. And then he gave me a, a book of Bible definitions and said, if you want to know, you can read it in there. But it's not important. Not important. He just sloughed it off. Doesn't matter. Because back then, the idea of there being one person who could rule the whole world, this is back before the internet, and that there could be one monetary system over the whole world when money was paper and coins and everything else, seemed like an impossible task for there to be a single monetary system in the whole world. And a monetary system that you could control from a central place? Well, nobody could imagine that. Do you have any trouble imagining it now? <laughs> we have no problem with it. Every time that we swipe our card at the grocery store, by the way, your credit cards, even my debit card, no longer is it swipe it with a magnetic strip, it has a chip in it. Mm -hmm. Gee, let's see, what would be the next step to protect my security and my personality so nobody can... Uh, make sure nobody steals the chip. To make sure, yeah, make sure nobody steals the chip and then nobody can steal my identity. Let's see, what's the right way to do that? Put the chip in your body. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. So if you took a mark somewhere in your body, like right hand or forehead, let's say, because those are easy scans... Well, then you can buy, sell, and trade. Without that, you can't buy, sell, or trade once that system is in place. Now, I'm just speculating here, but by my speculation, you're all nodding because you can see how quickly and easily that can occur. Now, that may not be the exact way that the Antichrist brings about all these buy, sell, trade promises, but you can certainly see it happening as one way because we can imagine it now. So all I'm getting at is this reality of Nebuchadnezzar saying, bow down to an image of me, and if you don't, you die, is something that we're still going to see in the course of history forthcoming. 
And with every day that passes, it's closer because we know it's coming and it has to appear on the stage of history at some point or the Bible's not true. Okay, start at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Yes, naturally. Because if you're a Chaldean leader and then your armies have successfully conquered Judah and the Jews have been brought in as slaves and next thing you know, Daniel and his three friends are second only to Nebuchadnezzar in the rulership of Babylon, of course you're going to say, wait a minute. The Jews aren't supposed to be ruling us. How did they do that? They're supposed to be slaves to us. So they wanted to get rid of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you, and they do not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let me show you something that Nebuchadnezzar did in his attempt to sort of erase the worship of Yahweh from Babylon and from these Jews. Do you know what the name Daniel really means? You see the E-L at the end. Oftentimes, Hebrew names have the E-L, the name for El, the shortened version of Elohim. Mikael, we call him Michael, or Gabriel, or you know, all those names have the L at the end of it. Well, Daniel means God is my judge. And the tribe of Dan, in fact, Dan will be judged. That's one of the prophecies against them, that Dan is going to be judged. But really, what it says is Dan will be damned, because Dan means to judge. And so what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, or Baal, protects his life. Now, there are different commentators different sources you can find for what Belteshazzar means. Some say it's Beltus protect the king, but that's because they're kind of being influenced by the name Belshazzar, which is a little bit different and does mean Baal will protect the king. But Hitchcock's definition says that it's he who lays up treasures in secret. So he came up with that translation. Importantly, whichever of those translations it is, it takes the Elohim out of his name and places Baal into his name. Hananiah, which means Yah or Yahweh is gracious. That's a very good name. He was given the name Shadrach, which means the command of Aku in the Akkadian. Aku was the name of the Babylonian god of the moon. And so he was given a a name of one of the Babylonian gods. And his name that referred to Yahweh was taken away. Meshael means who is like God. So he was given the name Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. In Akkadian, again, Aku being the name of the Babylonian god of the moon. So that's the similarity between Shadrach and Meshach. One is the command of Aku, and the other is who is like Aku. So he has a name like who is like God, and so he's given the name who is like a Babylonian God. So again, God is being erased from their names to try to eliminate any kind of Judaistic religion or the worship of Yahweh from the Hebrews. Uh, Azariah, the third of the Hebrew children, his name, Azariah, means Yah, 
or Jah has helped. That's a, a reference to Yahweh. And so, of course, he's got to lose that name. He's given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo being the Babylonian god of wisdom. So we're going to name him instead of after their god, and they all three had god names. They're going to now be named after Babylonian gods. After all, if Nebuchadnezzar was going to have them ruling over his people, he was going to make sure that they would worship the gods of those people. So what do they do? They don't worship those gods. They don't forget who they're named after. They don't forget whose name they carry. Last night in the men's group, we talked about the fact that we carry the name Christ with us. We call ourselves Christian, little Christ. We call ourselves followers of Christ. And because we carry that name with us, that designation of who we are, then that's how we ought to live. That's how we ought to be a reflection or emissaries of the one whose name we carry. And even though Nebuchadnezzar gave Babylonian names to the three Hebrew children, they continued to follow after the God that they were named after. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, another two characteristics we're going to see him continuing to demonstrate, like when he had a dream and said, everybody tell me what my dream was, or I'll kill you and your families and turn your houses into dung heaps. I mean, he was not a mild-mannered guy. So Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, well, then fall down and worship the image that I have made. If you do that, very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You hear the ego? Mm -hmm. What God can possibly deliver you? Now, now, I think he's making a fair statement at that point because he's got nothing but Babylonian gods. He's worshiping images, things made out of wood and metal. And none of them can deliver anybody from King Nebuchadnezzar. He is king of kings at that point. He is referred to as the king over all of the kings of all the different districts. And there was nobody who could deliver any man out of his hand when he made a decree. So he's saying something true, but he's also saying something out of ignorance because there is a God who can deliver out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar is just a man. And human beings have a tendency to get lifted up in their egos. And start thinking, like we read out of Ezekiel with the king of Tyre, they, they start thinking, I'm like a god. <laughs> I'm like a god. I'm, I can do whatever I want, and therefore I have godlike qualities. But every one of them, every one of those men in history who ever lived and thought they were gods, every one of them died and got eaten by worms. So really, how godlike were they? So he says, just bow down and it'll be okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. In other words, we already know. We, we've already decided. We don't even have to give you a defense for this. If it be so, 
our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Okay, that's a big problem. You don't talk like that to Nebuchadnezzar. After he has said, what God can deliver you from my hands? And you come back with, oh yeah, that can be done. There is a God who can do that. Oh yeah. But, verse 18, but even if he does not, this sounds like Job in all his misery, saying, though he slay me, yet I trust him. He says, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We're not going to do it. He is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, I'm still going to trust him. I don't have time to get into this in any great depth, but there are certainly going to be times in our life when we beg and plead God and pray to him saying, please deliver me from this. I'm going through a, a bad time, a tough time, a life-threatening time, a, a painful time. Deliver me from this. And far too often, people gauge their relationship with God based on whether God responds and delivers them. It's like they're dealing with God. They're making bargains with God. They say, if you'll do this for me, then I'll let you be my God. And then when he doesn't do it, they storm off and never darken the door of a church again. And God's not real and I hate the Bible. And because God simply did not do what they required of God in order for them to decide to make him their God, which is very, very backward thinking. The truth of the Bible is God is sovereign and does whatever he pleases and he might deliver and he might not, but he still requires your worship. He still is worthy of your adoration. And whether or not he delivers you from the thing you're going through, he's still God. And he knows a whole lot more than you do. He knows what's right up around the bend. You don't know. He knows what's going to happen next week and next, next month. You don't know. And he knows that for your own good, if he delivers you right now from the very thing you're begging him to deliver you from, that might not be good for you a week from now or a month from now. So God, who is most interested in his own glory and your own good, who loves and sacrifices for you, will always do those things that bring him the greatest glory and bring you the greatest good, which sometimes is going to be delivering you and sometimes is going to be not delivering you. That's right. And so here again, the Hebrew children say, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar respected their answer. <laughs> and said, well, okay, if that's the way you're going to be. No, just the opposite. Here we see Nebuchadnezzar, consistent personality profile here. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar is enraged at this. How dare you say this to the king? Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Doesn't that seem silly? I mean, if you burn to death, you're just as dead, whether it's one time or seven times as hot. You're not seven times more dead. You're not seven times more burned. In fact, you're probably going to burn quicker at seven times and suffer less. He was just so enraged that he went right into nonsense. Well, then I'm going to make the fire seven times hotter. So make the fire bigger. I'm going to show you. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. And these men were tied up wearing their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes. 
and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. So all those clothes and their caps and everything should have burned up, should have all been consumed, and they were tied with ropes. Now that's an important detail because when Nebuchadnezzar sees them in a minute, they're untied, which means the ropes burned and the clothes didn't. That is a very specific God. That is a God who knows how to specifically deliver people when he's capable of burning the ropes around people, but not the clothes around people. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the soldiers who took them up to throw them into the fire burned up. But they fell into the fire. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Daniel keeps emphasizing that. They were tied up. They're still tied up. Still tied up, because in a minute they're not going to be tied up. Then, verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. And he responded and said to his high officials, was it not three men cast bound, which means cast tied up? Didn't we throw three men into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, certainly, O king. He answered and said, look. I see four men loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth one is like the son of the gods. In other words, whatever he looked like, whatever the image was, it was superhuman. It was, it was somebody we didn't throw in there, but he's there now. And he looks so different than the other three that even Nebuchadnezzar could say, there's something supernatural happening here. Now, theologians have argued about this off and on through the years. I'm pretty convinced that it is a Christophany, that it is, in fact, the Son of God who has come to protect his people in the midst of the fire. But I love the fact that Nebuchadnezzar says, there's four men walking around in the midst of the fire. There's flaming fire everywhere, and they're walking around like, how you doing? You having a good day? Me too. Warm in here? Not bad. I'm okay. I could use a fan, but I'm good. <laughs> Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace of blazing fire, he responded and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come on back out. What else are you going to say to them, really? I mean, you're going to say, do you want to set up housekeeping? Uh, you're going to say, well, well come out, because apparently fire can't burn you. But look at the next phrase. Come out, you servants of the Most High God. Now, remember what I told you Abednego means? It meant servant of Nebo servant of a foreign god and now even with that name Nebuchadnezzar has to say you are servants of the most high god because he was telling the truth when he said none of the Babylonian gods can take you out of my hand if I'm after you and I'm going to kill you there's no god that can help you but the god that can keep people in a fire without burning that's a god that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know about but he knows this, it's the most high God, because there weren't any that could do this. Among all his stone statues and his metal statues, none of them could do this. Not only deliver the three men, but show up with the three men and walk around in the fire with the three men. Nebuchadnezzar came nearer to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had 
no effect on their bodies, nor was their hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had even the smell of fire come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, that's that word messenger, he has sent his messenger and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, even violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. He knew overkill. He was very familiar, apparently, with overkill. Inasmuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. He's right. There are no Babylonian gods who are able to deliver in that way. And yet, the God of heaven, the God of Israel was perfectly capable of delivering them and not only delivering them out of the fire, not even singe them and there's no smoke and their ropes burned off them. It's remarkable. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. That's just logical. If you're Nebuchadnezzar and you can't kill these three, the next thing you do is promote them because apparently the real God is for them. Now, as I began this tonight, I said that part of our New Testament Christology is really wrapped up in this because it is, yet again, another image of Christ in the Old Testament. I am convinced that Melchizedek is a Christophany. When you, write, when you read what the writer of Hebrews says about him, his commentary on him makes him out to be a Christophany. So Jesus is appearing before the New Testament, in Old Testament times, establishing so many really important things that we continue to understand and develop theologically, like the fact that God is Trinity. Because you get into Genesis and the, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And God is creating planets and yet you, you read that God said, let there be light, and you get to the Gospel of John, and John says, it was Jesus that spoke the words, let there be light, and gave him the proper name, the Logos, the speaking agency for the Godhead. And so even here, the appearance of the Son of God, who is also referred to in the book of Daniel as the Son of Man, helps us understand that God has always been Trinitarian, and that helps us understand why even in Genesis, he said, let us make man in our image. He was already speaking of himself as a plurality. So it's no surprise when we get to the New Testament and Jesus appears incarnate through the womb of a woman because we've already seen him appear several times in the course of history as God is preparing to send him as Messiah. And the only difference between the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ and the incarnation itself is that in the incarnation Jesus took on a body and why did he have to take on a body so that he could die because before that when he was just spirit he couldn't die so he took on a body took on flesh to be like us so that he could call us brethren so that he could die as our substitute and now he is both God and man sitting at the right hand of God and saying that he'll be back and that when he comes back, he is going to conform us into his image. One day you will be both human and divine, both spiritual and physical and able to transverse the distance between heaven and earth. When we die, according to Paul, we leave this body, and then we're present with the Lord. But then you get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, and New Jerusalem is on earth, and the church is resident there. So we're going to be able to transverse huge distances and domains that, that we have no 
knowledge of yet, no experience with yet. And all of that is wrapped up in, in these early pre-incarnation appearances of Christ, where he's all spirit at this point, but then he becomes spirit and human, and then he promises us, you will be spirit and human. So I don't think chapter 3 of Daniel is just a Sunday school story. It's important to the ongoing historic development of who Christ is, who God is, and ultimately who we are. Does that make sense? Yes. And again, God says, don't worship anybody else. And I think we ought to take that lesson and not compromise just to get along with the world because our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, he deserves our worship. Got that? If you take away nothing else tonight, I hope you take that away. Questions? There's a couple of things that I find very amusing in this chapter. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar watches while his very tough soldiers are burned to death, carrying out his decree. And then it says he came near the door, but it doesn't say how near he came. And secondly, he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, please come out. He doesn't say anything about the fourth man he sees walking around. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be that he had disappeared by that time. But on the other hand, if I am the king of kings over the known world, I probably don't want to invite the competition. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and if you see him and he has an appearance of the Son of God, and you know you're just a man? Let's just avoid this. You, you just stay in there. You, you stay away. Yeah, that, that's good for me. But you three come out. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.